It is August 6th, 2019. This is episode 7 of Rooster Tail Talk. I am your host, David Newton, and this is part one of our Seafair special. Seafair ended on Sunday. I had a wonderful time. I hope you did, whether you're in person or watching online or on TV. And we're going to start today's episode talking with Patrick Harrison. He is the Director of Marketing and Communications with Seafair. We're going to talk about their thoughts on how the event's going and what it takes to hold such a big event in the Seattle community. We're also going to recap qualifying and race results of Seafair. And we're going to talk further in detail about the final heat controversy, the results changing hours after the final heat was said and done. But before we begin the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to let me know how you think our podcast is going and to also share how much you're enjoying the podcast with others. All right, sit back, relax, and welcome to Rooster Talk. This year, I went down every day for Seafair. I went down Thursday for a little bit in the afternoon. Uh, did an interview with Andrew Tate there on site. That'll be another future episode to discuss my interview with him. But I was also there on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I went down with a couple of close friends over the weekend, as well as my father-in-law and, and my family. So I was able to share this with friends and family, and that makes part of it the reason why I like boat racing, hydroplane racing, so much fun. It's really a great event to bring your whole family and friends to. And my initial thoughts when I was getting ready, I was planning my weekend out, uh, looking at the schedule of events. And on Friday, they had testing in the morning around 9 a.m., went through uh, H1 testing, had some five liter testing, vintage boats. They had the J stock hydros. And then they finished it off with the qualifying round for each one. And that said it was going to be done around 1, 105, somewhere around there. So on Friday, all the boats were done by 1 p.m. And Saturday was somewhat of a similar schedule. It was done by 2 p.m. And on each of those days, once the boats were done, by that time, it was on to the air show. At first, I was disappointed in seeing that. But in uh, reality, I was, it, was, it was actually kind of pleasant as a fan, looking at through the fan's perspective, because there was more action. It wasn't as spread out throughout the day. Um, thinking back to last year... I was there for qualifying on Friday, and they had testing in the morning around 9, and then they didn't have the H1 hydroplanes out until 5 p.m. for qualifying. And that was such a long day with with such downtime. Uh, it really it made for a long and more of a boring day with all that downtime. So I actually did enjoy uh, that tighter schedule they had. I'm not sure how well the team's owners and drivers like that but from a fan's perspective i think that was a good decision uh, by uh, h1 and seafair to do that but also having the the blue angels perform after the hydros uh, there was many more fans that were watching the racing um, as opposed to last year when qualifying it started at five until until 5 p.m so many of the fans had already left because it was getting later and the final heat last year i remember I don't think they started the final heat till about 5.30 or something like that. And a lot of fans had left. In the first lap, the Alberto went through the rooster tail, flipped, so they had to stop the heat and do a restart. And I believe it wasn't until about 7 p.m. I remember we were getting worried that the sun was setting because it was getting it was getting really late into the evening. So we were didn't, there wasn't much daylight left. And there was very little fans on the shorelines there. It was so late. So having 
an earlier schedule is actually for the benefit of the fans in the long run. So hopefully H1 liked that and people like that on the shoreline and, and in the pits because I think it was a good decision. But a couple other things I want to talk about. First off, the Grand Prix boats, they were missed. Having the unlimited lights years ago was a, a, a benefit uh, and filler in the schedule, having more racing on the water. The Grand Prix boats, they do a great job of that. I would really like to have seen them uh, at Seafair. The uh, five liters were for fun to watch, but there was only five of them. And I think one of them broke down Friday and another one broke down Saturday. And so there was only three left on Sunday. And in the final heat, one of them didn't start. So it was a two boat run. It would be nice to see more boats there. The five leaders are fun to watch. It'd be fun if they could have 10 of them out there. But I would really like the Grand Prix to have been, been back at Seafair. They're a really fun class to, to watch. I'm getting more and more intrigued with that class. They're, they're loud. They're great racing. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it would have been really cool if they could have had 8, 10, or 12 of them down there in the pits and multiple heats going on and big final heat. Hopefully next year, Seafair will get that memo and someone out there will let them know and figure that out because that would be a great part to have with Seafair. But one thing I really did like, uh, this was the second year they did that, uh, they had the J-Stock J Hydras down there and they rock. They were so much fun to watch. It was really, really fun to watch the kids get so into it, involved, and excited for their racing, uh, trying their best, and getting help from their families and friends and, and the other race teams that sponsored uh, their boats and mentored those drivers. It was really cool to see how involved they were in such, such a stepping stone class into getting those kids into uh, racing outboards and eventually into uh, to bigger uh, outboards or inboard classes. I really hope that they return next year. They were so much fun to watch. Had so much more fun watching them than the, than the Formula One tunnel boats um, that were there in previous years. It was just a really cool class to have. And just seeing the excitement on those kids' faces, were, it, was, uh, it was a home run in my opinion. I actually have a nephew turning eight this fall. So it'll be nine in just over a year. I'm trying to plant that seed right now about the about the museum's program in the winter, building the AJ Stock Hydros, and start, trying to start some sort of uh, family race team. I think that'd be super fun to be able to share that with my nephew and and just kind of get the whole family together and go to the races. I think that would be super fun. I don't know if that'll happen. It might be dream world, but if I can get that to happen, that would be a lot of fun. I would really enjoy that. But there's a lot of other things I had fun with at Seafair. In the park, they had a huge canvas where they had multiple artists painting a mural uh, live all weekend. And it was to commemorate the 70th year of Seafair. They had some really cool things on the painting, including um, the Seafair Pirates and Clowns. But they also had the Hawaii Kai for the famous 58-win victory. They had some other hydroplanes on there, and it was it's a pretty cool piece. It was fun to see them uh, being able to do that live uh, all weekend long and seeing their progression. They also had a huge TV in the park. I don't know how big it was. It was one of those you would see like at a, at a ballpark, but it was it was really big. And several times in the weekend, I would be in the park area getting food or going seeing a booth or whatever. And a couple of those times, they were showing some older heats of racing. Uh, they had. Um, some races from the 80s and 90s and 
there's a lot of people there who are just sitting watching the old footage of the hydroplanes and I could hear stories of people saying, oh, I was at that race and I remember when this happened or just talking about the, the racing. I uh, sat and ate lunch on Saturday, I believe it was there in the park, watched uh, Heater Racing. It was pretty cool. That was a lot of fun. Um, they also, um, Alberto sponsored a small little boat race. They had a little, they had a little pool um, just outside the pits and they had little eight inch hydroplanes and they had a little course set up and the kids could pick a couple boats out and, and race around the course. That was a lot of fun. I know my son really enjoyed that exhibit, but I had a chance to meet up with Joe Bryant and Joe Bryant, he is, he, he is the head of a program for Mercer Island high school. They have a, they have a radio station, 88.9 FM, the bridge, and they have different high school students working together creating a radio station and I had the opportunity to be interviewed for that radio station talk about the podcast talk about hydroplane racing in the Seattle area I had a lot of fun doing that and Joe if you're out there listening to this I really appreciate the opportunity you had for me talking on the radio it was really fun to see your team and what your program is doing for the Mercer Island community it was really really fun and pretty cool so uh, good luck, Joe, with the future with that. And I think you got a, a good thing going on with that program and a lot of lucky kids to be working with you. And I got the chance to talk to a representative on the board of Seafair and its impact on the community in Seattle. I'm talking to Patrick Harrison, Director of Marketing and Communications at Seafair. And Patrick, how is Seafair going so far? It's going great. I mean, great weather, great competitive racing, uh, great air show. I mean, it's it's really something for everyone on both the land, sea, and air. Yeah. I've been out around the crowds today, and it seems like it's a, there's a pretty big, large crowd. Do you have any numbers so far or, or expectations of how many people are in attendance? We get numbers usually at the end of the day okay. or the next morning, but I think right now the, the expected is about 100,000. That includes from the South Shore up to the North uh, Thunder Bay with the, the classic car show that we had today. Oh, wow. With that in mind, how this is such a huge event in Seattle. How much does it take to get this in place? How many volunteers does it take? How many months of preparation is this, is it for this one weekend? Well, Seafair is not just about this one weekend. It's We do the 4th of July fireworks as well. It's the Melt Carton Derby. It's the Torchlight Parade. So it's six major signature events and 34 community events that Seafair is part of. So it takes... Believe it or not, it's only a full-time staff of 12, and it does take us a full year, but we have over 2,000 volunteers that make all of our events tick and make it happen. And we have a team of 12 college interns from uh, University of Washington, Gonzaga, other universities that are studying what they want to do in life. And so they're a big part of what makes this happen. Would you say Seafair so far are happy with the results for this event as well as the other events going on this summer? I'm thrilled. This is my first year with Seafair. I've been in the live entertainment industry for over 30 years, but my first time with Seafair, I came on board in February. But everyone that has been here saying that the crowds are bigger, there's more excitement, there's more diversity, and there's more things happening at different times. So it's a, it's a tighter schedule. So um, yeah, I, I, I definitely say it's been a definite success. Yeah. There's been some new things I've seen in the park here. One thing I really liked and saw, we watched a little bit today, was the artists out there making a a mural out there. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure, that was actually one of my ideas a, a couple months ago is I wanted to create something that was special about the 70th anniversary. So I found a company that uh, actually creates live artwork. So we have a team of three or four guys that are creating, it's a 28 foot long, eight feet tall, and there's there's highlights of Seafair 70th. So includes, you know, the Boeing barrel roll in the 50s with the plane. It includes, you know, obviously hydroplane racing in front of the, you know, beautiful Mount Rainier, the jets, the biplanes, the log boom, you know, obviously the parade and royalty and, and a salute to all of our families. So it's fun to watch that kind of come to life. That's actually going to be right in the center right now at the in the park. They'll finish it tomorrow afternoon. It's going to be our new backdrop for our new uh, conference room when we move to new offices later this year. Oh, awesome. All right, well, thank you so much, Patrick, and hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend, and I, I know I'll, I'll be on the shoreline. Look forward to enjoying us tomorrow. Yes, we will do. Before I go further into the podcast and talk about the final heat, I want to talk about qualifying and a few takeaways I had from the race. Qualifying at Seafair this year it was a bit similar to the Columbia Cup, rather uneventful. Home Street, once again, as predicted, got top qualifier. They were over five miles an hour faster than the next boat. So home street, they qualified at 154.513 miles per hour. And that's uh, a bit faster than they did last year with the same boat. That's about two miles an hour faster. So they were able to improve. And they all actually, looking back to last year's qualifying times and this year's qualifying times, every boat was slower except for two boats, the home street and the Graham trucking. Graham trucking, they qualified two miles an hour faster at 148.450. They still qualified third. Uh, Andrew Tate and the Delta Reel track, they got second place in qualifying at 149, uh, five and a half miles an hour slower than Home Street. So right off the bat, Home Street showed its dominance and its fast uh, fast times that they can do. Um, so you knew once again, uh, if you didn't before, that Home Street, they're, they're there to play. They're, they're fast. They have their A game set up. And that's impressive for them to put that put those times on the board in a in an age where not all the teams take as much pride in qualifying i believe i think some teams do it to, to get in the show and get a few points uh for the weekend but home street they are definitely the top of the class right now and um in every every way shape and form it's their crew um the hansen brothers they they know what they're doing on the boat there's a lot of other people on the team that are just fantastic workers and uh, fantastic minds on how to set the boats up. As Jimmy Gilbert and many others on the team, that's just a really great team that knows how to set that boat up to go fast. And they also have a great driver, Jimmy Shane. And we're going to talk more about that later on, but it'll be interesting to see in San Diego if any other team can step up and get closer to them. Um, I don't know if they'll be able to by San Diego, but next year I look for a few other teams to be able to rise up and give more of a challenge to home street. And I had a few takeaways from the race. Uh, it, there was some good good racing, some some fun shenanigans before the start and all that. And hope many of you got to watch uh, the race on Kong TV or on live streaming through H1 if you weren't there to be present at the race. Uh, but I would say my three takeaways from the race. Number one, uh, U11, as my kids at school would say, is, is on fire. Uh, they're legit. They're showing lots and lots of potential. Uh, I was incredibly impressed in Heat 2B. They had a decent start, They were, but they were out on the outside. They were with everyone at the start going into the first turn, but they were on the way outside. And going down the backstretch, I couldn't really see them. Uh, I saw, I believe, yeah, Alberto was in, in the inside, and they had the lead. A few boats uh, 
on on his hip. And as I came around the left corner to to finish the first lap, Jamie Nielsen and the eleven they were right there with Alberto. And going down the front stretch, they actually pulled him and they passed him before uh, the Alberto had a um, an issue with their fuel control, uh, and they went down. But they the, the eleven they showed a lot of speed. It was a really impressive um, thing to be able to do that, to pass a boat that qualified faster than they did, and to do that four lanes out on the outside. That takes a lot of speed to be able to do that. So the 11, they're headed in the right direction. Um, they got third overall in the final heat. That's their first podium in some time, and, and first podium, I believe, at Seafair. Uh, so that they're... They, <laughs> I think they made the right decision getting Jamie Nielsen in the seat. I think a lot of people around the pits are happy to see him in a boat that they know will be competitive in the future. And I look forward to seeing uh, where Jamie Nielsen's future goes with it because I think there's going to be some good things there. Uh, My second takeaway is home street is just fast, fast, fast. They showed it in qualifying. They had uh, a near-perfect day. I thought it was perfect uh, in the final heat, but there was uh, that call on them. So they... And they, they show their dominance by not really having a close race with anyone. They were able to win from whatever lane they were in. And I think they started lane two, three, four. Um, I don't think they were outside of lane four in, at all during the day. But they were able to win from those from lane four inside, which appeared to be pretty easy from the shoreline. I know it's not easy in the, in the cockpit, but, but they definitely had the speed to do it. And finally, my third takeaway is just once again, I was reminded of how tremendous this class of drivers is in h1 right now there's so many so much talent in every boat um i think overall it's one of the best classes of drivers um there's ever out there and it's hard to compare them um, for a lot of different reasons to previous classes and i think the hardest thing that these drivers have is that it's such a short season that they have very little seat time in their boats but they're able to perform at such high levels right now it's really fun to watch um jay michael kelly such a great starter getting the inside lane um jimmy shane able to to fly the boat um and he is able to put the boat where it needs to be to to win he had a great job of strategizing starts and keeping himself out of trouble one heat there where he he there was one heat where he knew better than to get in trouble and dice up for lane position and he took himself out and started in a clean lane Andrew Tate for a tremendous job of his starts he had some great starts over the weekend I know he had one I think in the first round wasn't as as he wanted to go but he had some great starts and great ability to fly the boat and keep his boat um, on the hip of others Jamie Nielsen for impressing everyone on the outside um, and that heat to be and I know he had some other good runs there Jeff Bernard he had some good starts as well. Uh, unfortunate circumstances and a couple of the heats. I know there was a timing issue in his first heat um, issue with the clock getting set up. Also, the fuel control, but he was able to get to the final heat. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't able to uh, get clean water. He got stuck behind in some really, really sloppy water, which can happen very easily in the final. Uh, Bert Henderson, he made some tremendous starts and got lane position. He's just uh, He's just missing some speed there. If he had a few miles an hour more, he'd, he'd be right up where there with him, and he'd be really pushing some people around. Uh, Corey Peabody, he knew where to put his boat to be successful and, and to get finishes. It'll be fun to see what he can do when he's given uh, a better piece of equipment, but right now he's doing a tremendous job with that 98, 
And Brian Perkins, uh, he was able to show some more performance increases with that new hull. He drove the boat really well on some really rough water, had some good finishes, and uh, unfortunately he had a, a penalty at final. But this is just a great, fun class of drivers to watch, and I really look forward to seeing what the future brings all of them because I think there's a lot of possibilities out there for these for these guys. So let's talk about the final heat. <clears throat> In that final heat, uh, I watched it there in the south turn. I had a good spot. I was watching live. Had fun looking for the, uh, the slicing and dicing and shenanigans before the start. Going down the backstretch, they established that J. Michael Kelly was in lane one, Nielsen two, Shane was lane three. And then coming up to the start, it looked like Shane just had a perfect start, and he just walked away with it. I think coming out of the first turn, he was half a, half a rooster tail ahead of everyone else, and by the time they were done with one lap, he had a Richtel lead over J. Michael Kelly. And then around that time, they announced over the loudspeakers that J. Michael Kelly, he was penalized for uh, the 80 miles an hour rule. So he was going slower than 80 miles per hour uh, for more than three seconds, uh, two times before the start of the heat. So at that point, it looked like what really was that Home Street had it sewn up because he had a Richtel lead over J. Michael, but J. Michael was penalized a lap. And he, and I think, I'm pretty sure J. Michael had a Rooster lead over Andrew Tate and Jones Racing, the Delta Rail Track. Pretty much after a lap, Home Street had a two Rooster lead. So he had the clean water, he was out front, and it was his. I was a little bit disappointed that Nielsen um, didn't have the best first lap that he could have. Uh, looks like going through the first turn, I don't know if he lost his lane or if this. Or if he took his foot out of it because he was afraid of losing his lane um, and saving the equipment, which is a smart call. Um, you don't want to be rebuilding the whole boat before heading down to San Diego. Um, but he, he, he was able to get third out of it, so that was a really great um, finish for the team. So he uh, was able to boost the team up to a podium uh, position, which is uh, huge for the, uh, for the 11 team. I mean, it was really fun to see that them get that strong finish. So the final heat from the, the shorelines, after a couple laps, the boat stretched out and it wasn't, we weren't treated to as close a race as we have been in years past. Uh, years past, there's been some great deck-to-deck -deck races and even in Columbia Cup a week ago, um, the, J. Michael Kelly and Tate had a really close race and you didn't know until the last lap who was going to win, really. I left thinking that Home Street won. We packed up our stuff, and as we're walking out, we could hear the awards ceremony. So they didn't have the awards ceremony, the awards ceremony too long after the final heat took place. And as I got our stuff, we got through, got to the TV in the park. We stopped, and we could see them awarding um, Jimmy Shane and the Home Street uh, the the trophy for for their victory. I was thinking that was a clean race. We had it done, no controversy. Okay, we're gonna go home and have a nice dinner, and and that's that. So, but then we ate dinner, got on the couch, was watching TV, and I looked on my phone, and believe it or not, it happened. So, Home Street was announced that uh, they were uh, illegal in the final heat. And uh, the official statement from H1 was that after reviewing onboard video, H1 hydroplane officials said that Shane had indeed gone below the minimum speed twice and added a one minute penalty after the race. The officials also reviewed onboard video from Kelly's race boat and determined that the penalty call during the race on Kelly was going 
under 80 miles per hour, 80 miles per hour was incorrect, and his one-minute penalty was rescinded. This was also the third consecutive year Seifert has been decided by a penalty. So two hours after the race was completed, uh, H1 announced that the call was reversed to the public. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the process for review is and for objections. I know that they have a process um, in the rule books. They have it um, written out and what um, is to be done once there is an objection or there is a call that is in question. And I remember when we were packing up our stuff on the shoreline, the boats were just getting to the docks. And already at that point, some representatives of the Graham team had let it known to the officials that they were protesting or objecting to the results of the final heat and they wanted to talk to the referees or the officials. So at that point we knew that there was some question to it, but we didn't know the legitimacy of it because I think there's a lot of times in racing where people or where there are things that get objected that don't often get uh, rescinded, right? Um, it looks bad for H1, but wouldn't it also look bad if they didn't reverse it? Wouldn't it look bad if we saw the video of Home Street um, going underneath 80 miles per hour more than uh, three seconds for two or more times and H1 did nothing? Wouldn't, look wouldn't it look bad on the organization if after the race we found the exact evidence that Home Street didn't actually technically win because they broke the 80 mile an hour rule? I mean, you can play devil's advocate, which, which is worse. I think, I mean, either way is not great for H1, but you have to give it to H1 that they got the call correct, that they did what they were supposed to do and, and recognize the true winner of the race. But what do, what do the fans want? As a fan, what do you want to have? What do you want to have happen? Do you want the H1 organization to make sure that the calls are correct and they give the true winner um, the, the credit for their victory? Or do you want to go with the results that immediately follow the end of the race, which may or may not be true? I know as a fan, the answer is both, right? You want the results to be completed uh, perfect at the end of the race, but you can't, you can't have that. You can't currently have that um, with racing. It's such a unique sport and where it's at right now, you can't, you can't have both. So what, what needs to happen for more positive spins on the races? I, I don't know. Uh, I know I'm sure people are looking at the rules right now and thinking about that. It is kind of a sour spot on the sport for the fans, for the teams that are frustrated, for the teams that get the victories taken away. Uh, I'm sure it's not the way that Graham wanted to win, right? You, you want to win on the race course. You don't want to have to be, you know, objecting to rules and all that. Uh, it's it's a sour spot for uh, sponsorships. And it's not, not the first time uh, in H1's history that a, a win has been overturned. I remember a couple years ago uh, when I left Seafair, I left thinking that Andrew Tate had won the race, but it was overturned afterwards due, uh, due to a pen penalty. I can't remember if he hit a buoy or went through a DMZ zone, and it was overturned, and the award was given to Shane. And another year earlier, um, probably more like 15 years or 10 years ago, there was a similar th issue with um, John Theoret and Dave Vilwak, and one of them was presented the win, but hours later, 
uh, it was reversed and given to the other. And I even remember Budweiser's last Gold Cup in 2004 at the uh, in Detroit. They were presented with the Gold Cup, the trophy, and they did the award ceremony, did the photo shoot, did everything. And then after all that was that was finished, they found that um, they were illegal in um, a, a lane violation, I believe it was, and was rescinded their um, victory and given awarded to uh, the Gregories. Because they finished second, but they were given the, the win. So I know each one wants to get it right, and I applaud them for doing that. You want to make sure that the right team is awarded the victory. Uh, the only downfall is the timely decisions. Um, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a lack in the technology of taking too long to, to know the, the appropriate feedback. Is it lack of personnel running the technology? Is it a lack of finances to have the proper channels to f- figure out what the penalties are and who and who should be penalized? Um, I don't know. I don't have the answers. Um, but I know that they were trying to rush their product out for the awards ceremony. They want to make sure that they can have, while the media is there, that they can present their awards, which they, sh- they should be able to do, share that with the public and the fans and I know the fans like seeing that and the local media likes presenting that. Um, but in situations like this, it creates more of a controversy and it's more in the public eye. But you know what? Each one's not the only sport to have controversy. All, I'm pretty sure about this. I'm pretty sure that all major sports have controversy, especially when it comes to referees and officials and decisions made on the field, on the court. I'm pretty sure that all sports in general, have this. Now, I, I don't follow all the sports out there. I like racing. I love H1 racing. I love hydroplanes. You know that. But I do also follow Major League Baseball and NFL. And in NFL, there you could go on for hours and days on all the controversies of referees and decisions made and calls made or not made. And there's a few that just pop out in my mind right now as I'm thinking about this. I can remember watching a game... Uh, was in the playoffs. I can't remember which two teams were, were playing, but they had a coin flip to um, decide who got the ball first in overtime. And the team called it as it was being flipped in the air. And the referee said it was opposite of what they said. And so say like the team called heads and the coin flipped, the referee looked at it and it was heads, but he said that the t- that team actually called tails. So, the team actually got it right, but the ref thought they said the other thing and gave it to the other team, and the other team actually won that game. So that was a huge mistake by the ref that didn't get fixed. They went on playing because that was, I believe that was before instant replay. So they went on playing, lost the game because of the ref's mistake, and that did not get corrected. I also remember this, a Seahawks-Packers game uh, a few years ago, it was early in the season. I believe that was when the referees were on strike, so they had different referees coming in to um, to ref the games. And the Seahawks were down by a couple. They threw a pass in the end zone. A Packer player and a Seahawk player held the ball in the end zone, and the Seahawks were awarded the touchdown. And that was the end of the game. The Seahawks won. And I don't know for sure if that was a true call. There was a lot of controversy about that one. Um I'm a Seahawks fan, and I want to say it was, but I, I kind of know that wasn't quite the right call. And then I also remember a couple of years ago, the Cowboys in the playoffs, 
Des Bryant caught a ball, what we appeared to think he caught a ball, and the referees said, no, it was an incomplete pass. But looking at the evidence, or instant replay, it appears he caught the ball, but the referees overturned it and said that wasn't a call, and they ended up losing the game because of that. So there's, I mean, there's a lot more of, there's a, there's many more examples you can come up with in football, but they have a lot of controversies with their calls as well. And they don't, they used to not always get it right or go back and make it right. And in Major League Baseball, I can think of how many times that fans interfere with the ball or how many times they throw a strike and they call it a ball or it's a, it's obviously a ball and they call it a strike. They don't always get it right. They get it wrong a lot. And what one thing I can think of that they that NFL has done and MLB in more recent years that they've these organizations have done to improve their imperfections and calls missed is implement instant replay. They've done this so they can get the games right, so they can make sure that no mistakes like that coin flip happens again, which was a clear error that was not um, made correct. And they've implemented this instant replay. They make sure they give the teams a chance to have instant replays, but they don't allow them to have more than a certain amount. I believe in the NFL, each team gets two flags per game to throw. They throw the red flag on the field. Sam challenging that last call, that last play. I believe it was shouldn't have been called that way. If they get one of them right, they get a bonus one. But I believe they're just given two per game. So this shows that the organizations, they're giving the teams power to review it. But they also have strict limitations on, on how that's going to happen. They have time limits. They can only throw the flag up to a certain point. Once the point of play is reached, reached further than that, they can no longer um, protest that one play. In MLB, they've started doing the same thing recently because they want to make sure they get the calls right, which H1 did that. They got the call right. In my mind, they got the call right. They gave the true winner the trophy at the end of the day. And I know H1 has rules on this. They have their procedures. And I'm sure if we look at the rule book, we can see exactly what those are because I know they're they're very clear of, of what they are doing. And they try to be as translucent with uh, the public as they can. But in my opinion, I believe that this needs to be tightened up for more clarity for, our, for the fans. Because it's not that fun to go home and have dinner and then see hours later that, oh, that's... I guess Jimmy Shane didn't win. I guess J. Michael did win. Okay. Well, it was a different heat than I thought it was. And there's there's tons of ways that they can do this, right? I know that they're thinking about it. They're not just saying, oh, well, we'll just try again next time. They're an organization that's working really hard to uh, improve the product of racing um, that they have. And I've I've seen that in many ways this year. They're they're working hard on it. They're they're moving towards um, improvements in a lot of areas. But I was just thinking as a fan some different things that they could do. And I think it would be kind of fun. Maybe the, someone out there will hear this and give it a thought. Maybe they won't. I'll just share it with, uh, with who's, those who want, want to hear this stuff. I just think it would be kind of fun as a fan if they had something similar to what the NFL does. In the NFL, the coach doesn't like what happened on that play said we we need to look at this right now and so they have on their belts they have little red flags and they just throw on the field they can see it that's all good wouldn't it be kind of fun if one representative 
per team had a flare gun. So you can only shoot it once a year, right? You don't want them shooting flare guns every heat. But instead of a flag, have a flare gun. Give them, say, five minutes from the finish of the race. Once that five minutes is up, they can't, they can't protest. It's done. we got to leave it as it is. But they could shoot it out into the race course and say, I protest. Let's take a look at that heat. Let's talk about it. Let's see if the call was right or not. I think that'd be pretty fun. This would be a visual for fans to know something's going on here. Maybe maybe there was a penalty that was, wasn't seen after all. Maybe the penalty was on the wrong boat. Maybe that wasn't actually a penalty. Maybe they didn't jump the gun. Or maybe the, the other guy jumped the gun. I just think it'd be fun as a fan that you know right away that flare gun goes off. Well, there, there's an objection. There's time for instant replay. And I believe they have like a 30-minute decision time now. Maybe they need to tighten it up to 20 minutes or something to make to give the officials 20 minutes after the race is done, after the, the protest is presented. And then by the end of the 20 minutes, they have to announce to the fans, like on NFL, like on the loudspeakers or on TV, what the decision was. And if there's no appeals in that five minutes after the race, they just go straight to the award ceremony and they're done. And then, Or if it was appealed, give them that 20-minute window. And then at the end of the 20 minutes, the decision's made. That would be fun. I don't know if that's something that can be done, but it's a thought. Who knows? The only problem I, I have with any organization is if they do nothing to improve on any mistakes or situations and just let it sit idle. I really think that the team that's on H1, they're not going to do that. I think they're to start of the discussion a second after Seafair was officially finished and they gave the award to J. Michael Kelly. I'm sure they were, were already thinking and talking about ways to improve upon this so this won't happen again. Because that's what major league sports, they have to do. They have to adapt with the times. They have to make the games or matches or races tighter. They have to make it more open to the fans to know what's going on. And from what I've seen with H1 this year, they're doing a great job at doing that. It's unfortunate that this happened, but it's racing. And racing is so much more unique than football or more so much more unique than baseball, other professional sports, and especially hydroplane racing. It's so much different than car racing because you have the second element of the start to think of. In NASCAR, they don't jockey for position before the race. They don't they don't maneuver around the course to get the inside lane, to get the lane that they want. They start at a set position. And I love that about hydroplane racing. It's half of the fun is seeing them jockey around, doing their shenanigans around the course, pushing people around, get trying what they can to get the inside lane. It's it's really fun to see the strategies and the different ways that can be done. And there's a lot of wins out there that I know Hanauer and other great drivers like Steve David, um, J. Michael Kelly, that they can attribute to getting that good start and others not. Uh, we saw that last weekend with J. Michael Kelly. He had the perfect start on the inside and the fastest boat in the field was back quite a ways on the outside of him. And so he wasn't able to win. So I hope that some solution can be found which I'm sure can be, so you don't eliminate that. But maybe instead of changing the procedure of protesting and the rules, maybe 
maybe hydroplane racing needs to change the way they think about the start. And it doesn't matter what you do, every part of it is going to have a downfall, right? So right now we have the downfall of the 80 mile an hour rule. Some people don't like it. I personally like the 80 mile an hour rule because it doesn't, I didn't like the product that was given, what, five, seven years ago? I can't remember how many years ago it was. When the boats were literally stopped on the front stretch, coasting with the with the uh, current and to go down the front stretch to get to the score at buoy in the inside lane that was kind of boring i didn't i didn't really care for that i think with the 80 mile an hour rule it, it brought back some of the fun of of crawling around or of not crawling but jockeying around for position but then you have to enforce the 80 mile an hour rule and it brings in that zone of judgment so maybe do they need to get rid of the 80 mile an hour rule and go back to crawling do they need to implement score up buoys so they can only be past certain buoys by a certain time, um, like the five liters do and I think the GPs do? Do they need to go back to assign lanes on qualifying times and heat finishes and point totals? Um, they did a number of years ago. I believe they did that to get rid of the crawling. So they would still have a start, but they would be assigned their lanes. So you just still have the judgment of who would jump or who would not jump but you knew which lane you're going to be in. So you weren't crawling around out there and there was less opportunity for judgment calls on that. Do they need to go back to the flag start? Like back in the nineties, the flag start, that's kind of, it's more of a representation of, of car racing because you have set lanes. You withdraw the judgment. If somebody is jumping the gun, so you, you have to wait, you line up all the boats in their respected lanes. That's predetermined. Go around the course, make sure as they enter the front stretch, everyone's around a similar speed. And once they get to the starting line, if everyone is in, I believe what they call it, a box. So if they're close enough to each other, they give them the green flag and they off they go. And they're racing. As a fan, is that going to be something that's more easily identifiable and understandable? I don't know. I was pretty young back in the early 90s when that happened. I just thought they were cool boats that looked awesome and had beautiful colors and went fast. I don't really remember the the flag starts that well but then if you go to flag start or you go to assign lanes that takes away some of the talent that the drivers have so it's going to be more beneficial to the faster boats and less beneficial to the talent of some of those drivers out there i don't know you know i was thinking more about that and i thought well there's i'm sure there's many more ways which there are there's many more ways you could do it one way i was thinking is they could have a score at buoy say have the score at buoy on the front stretch uh, at the starting line. Okay, so on the two mile course, you'd probably want to have that at minute 20 or so. So say you had that at minute 20 or minute 15. Once you're past that score at buoy, you have established your lane. And so you have to maintain that lane for the entire lap before the start. By doing that, that would give the judges, and the officials, more time to enforce the 80 mile an hour rule. Because after that point, you don't have to, to judge if they're on plane or not at 80 miles an hour. They have their lanes established, and it's up to them to make it around and go, get to the start on time. Maybe that giving them the judges extra time for that, to review that, maybe that'll help them. So that there are less times, opportunities for judgment calls in that matter, and less opportunities for mistakes. Because you got to understand, the races, they're pretty quick. They're three, four, or five lap races. And that's not a lot of time for officials to make their calls 
And a lot of it comes down to, to judgment calls. You can get down with, with the cameras and the drones and the strobe lights and all of this technology, but you still have to piece it all together and make a judgment call. But no matter how you look at it, how you change it, in the long run, every option, every rule is going to have its own downfall. The only thing that we really want to see is just see the organization keep on trying and keep on improving. And I have 0% doubt that each one is going to have that issue. They have a great team and they are going to find a way to make the races more tighter, to make it more accessible to fans and have less opportunities for calls and judgments to um, really kind of put a negative effect on the race. I trust the people that are in each one right now, and I'm excited to see how they respond to this and what their what the next race is going to be like. But listeners out there, I want to know, what, what do you think? Should H1 change the starting procedures? Should there be some other form or protocol for a protest in a race? I'm interested to see what what you think out there. Please respond to this episode's post on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Please be respectful in your posts and do not use derogatory words. If I see derogatory words on there, I will delete. And please do not attack others with their opinions. Please understand that this is a sport, but it's a sport that we all love and we all want to see it to improve. I think one way that can happen is to let the people know your voice and what our opinions are. But Seafair's over. Summer, to me, is coming to an end. I have to go back to school here in a couple weeks. I've got to get back in the classrooms and get prepared for the year. I feel like racing is coming to an end, but there is some local region racing coming up. I'm excited to go and see a little bit more of that. And I got airplane tickets. We're going to San Diego. I'm going to go down and cover that race and enjoy the nice weather down in San Diego. It's been a while since I've been there. It's been about 12 years or so. I think 2007 was my last year there. So I'm excited to go back down there and see some friends and, and see some great racing. I hope you enjoyed part one of the Seafair Special. I'm going to be putting together part two of the Seafair Special this week, and we'll release it next Tuesday, the 13th at 5 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. In that episode, I will have interviews with some crew members, fans, and also with the local sponsorship. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your podcast player. It is very helpful for this podcast if you rate and review your experience. By reviewing your experience, it lets me know how you like Richardell Talk, but also shows others how much you are enjoying it. You can also check us out on social media for updates on Hydro News. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I had a lot of fun at Seafair. I hope you did too whether it was being down at the race on Lake Washington or watching on TV or live streaming online. So until next time, I hope to see you at the races. <laughs>